Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. So riddle me this, David, and I've known you for quite a while, and we've been doing the show now for about five months or so. How does one become the self-proclaimed Photoshop prophet of Earth? I need to know. Here's the yardstick by which Photoshop prophecy is measured. If you can close your eyes and without the software in front of you, Gene, visualize the entire menu and dialogue structure of the application. And if you can do a Photoshop demo where you don't have the program running because the computer they were supposed to get for you doesn't work, so you now have to take Photoshop questions from an audience who's come prepared with them and answer those questions by literally closing your eyes, visualizing the program, visualizing their problem, and dictating to them from memory exactly what steps in Photoshop they have to take to accomplish what they're doing, that gene would make you the Photoshop prophet of the earth, which, by the way, is indeed what I am, given that years ago I did exactly that gene. I, I literally did a Photoshop demo without Photoshop. There were people in the audience just gasping, not, not knowing how I was doing this. And, and I'll qualify this, Gene. This was about seven or eight years ago. I don't know that I could do that with today's version of Photoshop. It's become so complex, and there are so many sub-menus in that thing and sub-dialogues. I don't know that I could do that anymore, but I certainly could do it back in the days of Photoshop 5. Okay, how did you get this title, though? Uh, I gave it to myself, man. Like anybody can read on the thread, I literally inserted it as some humor in a, in a response to someone who was uh, far less than humorous. So it's, I'm, it's uh, self-proclaimed. <laughs> okay, okay. Speaking of far less than humorous, the Paracast's message boards have been all over the Internet in recent weeks. Yeah. And this is not something we plan on. You know, you don't plan on flame wars. They just happen. Okay, flame wars where just people start yelling yeah. at each other in print online. Yeah. It just happens. This just happened. And maybe, David, for those who are new to the show, you could explain exactly where it began. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I have to believe, Gene, that people are getting tired of this at this point because there's been so much activity on the board of people chiming in and saying to us, thanking us. For, you know, having, I can't even say the word anymore, man, having the Maya representative on to talk about what I feel is the clear case of a very well put together, in some regards, in other regards, very amateurish UFO hoax. So, you know, here this guy comes on to present, quote unquote, present, it was more like lecture us about all of the, the lies and the fabrications and the misdirections and the, the just every bit of information that this guy is essentially pulled out of his, you know, posterior end. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I don't want to say ass, but there, I said it, ass. Oh, uh, we're not listening, folks. We're not yeah, using yeah, the yeah, A word listen. here. Of course, if George yeah. Bush could use the S word, I guess we could use the A word and get away with it. If you're just tuning in, you're in the Paracast <laughs> with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we are doing a Monday morning quarterback review of a flame war at the paracast.com website. Well, the bottom line, and, what, and this is really what, what ended up happening, was that I was able, clearly and objectively speaking, to demonstrate that a specific image of the images being presented as genuine UFO photographs was faked, was fabricated, without any question. You know, there, this image had five major issues, any of which would be the smoking gun about an image being fabricated, composited from multiple images. 
So I was able to prove this with my Photoshop skills and some real basic visual analysis gene. I'm not talking about anything that required, you know, electron tunneling microscopes. We're talking about a basic critical look at an image that to me screamed fabrication. And I have to say, it's not even the fakest looking image these guys have. It's, it's one of the, the sort of better ones, but there were some things about it that struck me as being specific artifacts of an optical composite. And uh, when I was able to prove this, that this, this fellow, the U.S. authorized media representative for these people. Who shall go uh, unnamed. This is a guy who absolutely dwells on any attention, negative, positive attention. It doesn't matter. This guy is addicted to attention. He's vindictive. He, quite frankly, he's psychotic. And that's what came out in the last episode with him. And that's what more than came out in the thread on the forum, where this guy essentially unraveled in, right in front of our eyes. And I caught him in a red-handed lie that's so noxious and so distasteful that, to me, it should forever seal the question of any credibility this guy might have had. And I have to tell you something. I can't wait till at some point we're at some UFO or paranormal convention and this guy's in the same hall. I'll tell you what, I'm going to get up in front of him, in front of an audience, and I'm going to hit him with the hard questions that he couldn't answer on our show because he has an agenda, and that agenda is to make money. He came out and he said it on the forum. I don't think this guy believes any of this junk, all right? He's just in it for the dough. And I have to tell you, Gene, and I've said it on the show and I'll say it again, we are trying to find some truths, whatever truths we can actually uncover or even comprehend about various aspects of the paranormal field. UFOs are obviously a hot topic. They're of a lot of interest to me personally, and I'm interested in understanding the things that I've seen, the things that other people who I've spoken to have seen. And this Meyer camp, one of the things, the thing that really bothers me, and I have to say this to you, I don't care if they want to believe in this guy's philosophies. I don't care if they want to believe that this guy has seen stuff. I'm all for freedom of speech, Gene. But when they start to attack what I consider legitimate cases, and they start to question the agendas of people who have these legitimate sightings, I mean, this guy went and told me on our forums that the reason that I was talking about what I've seen in Caracas in 1974 was that I wanted to start a UFO cult which is just absolutely patently ridiculous. And as I mentioned on the forums, really qualifies to me that this guy is projecting what he knows to be the truth about the Meyer case. He knows that this stuff is being fabricated to support a cult. And the fact that he tried to accuse me of this, well, it was just another part of all of the psychological projection that this nutcase tried to aim against myself and, and, and at you as well. If you go and read the appropriate thread on the forum, you can see exactly what I'm talking about. Don't take my word for it. Go read what this guy said in his own words, and, uh, and you'll be amused, and you'll be a little, uh, little saddened at the fact that someone could just so completely lose it. And over what? Over fabricated photographs? Off of bogus witness testimony? I mean, if you're going to lose your mind, lose it over something worthwhile, like, you know, a woman. Yes, that's worth losing your mind over. By the way, folks, our friend Jim Mosley, the editor of Saucer Smear, he does not have a personal computer. In case you're wondering how he gets stuff online, people help him. doesn't have a personal computer. So I decided to print out the Ooh. thread, the message yeah. board thread, as of the day that I printed it out, which is a couple of weeks back. It totaled 97 pages. <laughs> okay? I sent him all 97 pages. 
And yeah. he said, what is this? He looked at it for five minutes and said, you know what? I'm going to throw this in file 13, file 13 being the trash bin. And that's what he thought of it. Mm. He thought yeah. it was absurd. I mean, the whole thing is absurd. And if you look at the photos here, there's nothing in the Meyer photos that stands out. Most of the ones I've seen, they're patent frauds, like the wedding cake photos, which are ridiculous. Yeah. And then when you hit them with the news, well, this is a fake, and this is obviously a trash can used to make up this mock of a flying saucer, UFO, Palladian yeah. craft, whatever. Up with all the specifics, man. They figured out how these guys did it. And you know what? Their response will be, the Meyer people say, well, of course, we built the trash can lids from yeah. alien technology. Oh, now just stop. No. I'm no laughter, ladies and gentlemen. This is the fact. This is what they tell you. They built it from alien yes. technology. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. I'll tell you something that isn't built from alien technology, though. The Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're doing our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday <laughs> quarterbacking session of a flame war. And later on the show, we're going to talk to Dr. Stephen Greer. He is a real MD, not one of these fake MDs, a real live MD from the Disclosure Project. And we're going to talk to him about what he calls the smoking gun of UFO reality. And we're not going to throw him out in 10 minutes. This is going to be an interview that will last 70, 80, 90 minutes. We're going to give him plenty of time to express his viewpoint. No deconstruction there. Just going back to that other episode with the Meyer people. What interested me, in addition to having their American representative deconstruct himself in our forums, we had other people from the Meyer camp join us. And we asked everyone the same question. Look at David's analysis of the photos. We right. even posted David's Photoshop files on the forum, yeah. okay? If you go to theparacast.com, click on the forum links, you can take a look at them. There's several hundred messages to go through, so it might take a while. And the photos are such a way that if you click on them once, you see the full-size thing. In right. fact, in one case, it's so large, it opens up a second window on your computer, Mac, or PC, because it's so big. And David explains exactly what he did. Do you know that nobody, not a single person in the Meyer camp, had any specific comment to make about wow. that, except for one where the unmentionable person says something about double or triple oh, exposure, triple which, of course, exposure. we've made very clear in the forums and on last week's show, for example, he doesn't understand what a double exposure yeah. means. Plus, Meyer used a camera that was specifically designed not to do double exposures unless you go through a song and a dance. So how would the one-armed man do it accidentally? Well, I think we, we, we know what happened. The guy had help in fabricating images. Now, something that I need to mention is that because of this whole experience, I've connected with a fellow by the name of Jeff Ritzman, who on, an, on a very popular 
online discussion forum, ATS, Above Top Secret, one of the, the most important, probably, conspiracy discussion forums on the Internet. Earlier this year, Jeff Ritzman had battle with this guy. We don't want to mention his name. You know, the one with the unmentionable name. You know, but, like um, George Bush has the S oh, word. Let's say the M word. The M word. Okay. Yeah. With Mr. M yeah. word. Yeah, you know, that guy. Right. So Ritzman basically stepped up to the challenge that this guy put forward, which he put forward to us, which was, if you think this is a fabricated image, then it's up to you to replicate the fabrication exactly, and that will then prove your point, which, of course, from a logical point of view, is absolute nonsense. All that would really mean is that if we fabricated the exact same image that Meyer had fabricated, that we were capable of fabricating a fake image. It doesn't prove the other one is real, not being able to, but not taking the time to do it, doesn't prove a damn thing. Well, Jeff Ritzman, Gene, this fellow, who's a really great guy, I've been talking to him a bunch in the last couple of weeks, and it's like a long-lost friend I've reconnected with, but Ritzman took up Horn's challenge. Oh, I said the name. Anyway, he took up the guy's challenge. The and and Mr. Created, M word. No, just, let's not even beat that one. Jeff recreated a set of photos, including creating the craft. Actually, it turns out that Jeff collects really cool old movie props. So he used some of the props he had to recreate photos that looked every bit as good as the Meyer stuff. And, of course, at that point, confronted with this, their authorized U.S. media rep proceeded to have a complete meltdown on ATS and started just blatantly lying and accusing Jeff of not willing to submit his images for analysis. Of course, their version of analysis being, let's send the stuff off to Switzerland to the cult members who will, you know, lose the film like they've lost all their original negatives. And what Jeff did was say to them, you know what, I'll send my original negatives and my prints to a third-party analyst. You guys do the same, and we'll hear what that person has to say. And as you can imagine, the Meyer camp completely backpedaled and essentially wouldn't do it. So Ritzman went to that extent of proving these images were easily fabricated, and he ran into the same kind of nonsense that we ran into with these people. He met said, the challenge. He went he, in there. They challenged him. Challenge. Absolutely met the challenge. And I should absolutely. point something out to you, too. When you, Thomas is duplicating the photo. Now, say they take it at a house in Switzerland. Now, right. to duplicate that photo, you have to go to the house in Switzerland, build the model of essentially the same components or something that duplicates the components, and then take the picture. So sure. duplicating the exact picture is a total absurdity because you have to recreate these conditions. And what you can do, though, is show that you can take a picture with the same characteristics of right. a model in the right. air being held by a string and all this and wobbling back and forth. And we wonder what's wrong with the alien propulsion systems, by the way, that the spacecrafts <laughs> always wobble in well, such an erratic fashion. They wobble like well, something being held up by a string. And, of course, the Meyer people will tell us that's deliberate, that the well, aliens invented the string. Yeah, of course, and they invented our eyes as well. Look, there have been a number of interesting, compelling UFO cases where there is, a, and I talked about this in another one of our threads, the issue of visual believability of evidence. This is an important point, Gene, because your mind knows when it's seeing something fake. And at this point, especially given how our minds have been indoctrinated into all of these extensive, expensive motion picture special effects where we see pretty much everything being created from scratch, that it has nothing to do with reality. We've seen images that would, would just absolutely stun someone from 100 years ago. We consider these images mundane. 
at this point, you know, directors are having a hard time getting people to get excited about the visual imagery playing out on them. People have been so indoctrinated into understanding visual effects and, and recognizing them. There is an issue of visual believability, which none of the Meyer stuff passes. But to address your question about wobbly motion, there are a number of interesting Still unsolved cases, as are most of the compelling UFO cases, where we see motion, or there has been reported, motion that does appear to be these ships kind of wobbling in the air. And the theories I've heard put forth is that if these ships are using electromagnetic means of propulsion inside the Earth's atmosphere, then it would sort of make sense that you would see the effect of these things essentially floating on electromagnetic waves that these are not linear uh, occurrences, that you know there is kind of this entropy to the way that an electromagnetic field looks and behaves, and that these ships are coasting on it, that you would expect to see, or are, again, people have reported seeing, the kind of motion that is a little wobbly. Not wobbly like on a string wobbly, but wobbly in a way that, again, your mind has never seen, your eyes have never seen. That's where, again, the Meyer stuff completely falls apart. We've seen little model ships on strings. Ed Wood made plenty of use of that stuff many years ago. The thing about Ed Wood, though, is he did a better job than Meyer. Well, you know, the thing or about Or maybe it, it's a mixture of, of <laughs> capabilities there. Maybe he did as well. Maybe the spirit of Ed Wood is being channeled through oh, Billy Meyer. That's another oh, possibility. Stop it. By the way, in case you're wondering who Ed Wood was, there was a great movie with Don, Johnny Depp as Ed Wood and Martin Landau, this great character actor, oh, one man. of the original members of the Mission Impossible team. If you remember him and his wife, Barbara Bain, and Martin Landau won, I believe, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for Absolutely Ed Wood for playing Bela Lugosi oh, in his was, final years. He was magnificent. Oh, he was so good. That was, well, that's a great Tim Burton movie that made no money in theaters because people did not know what it was about. It was shot in black and white. Burton wanted to remain true to the spirit of the time. And um, besides a fantastic performance from Johnny Depp, but by the way, can that guy deliver a bad performance? Have you ever seen him really screw up a movie? He's been in screwed up movies. That new Pirates of the Caribbean film, what a dog. But Depp is very entertaining in it. He's the only reason to really watch it. He does a fantastic Ed Wood, but it's Martin Landau as Bela Lugosi that is not only completely believable, but captured Lugosi in a way that, and look, this is the Paracast, it's not about movie stuff, but I gotta tell you, there's one scene in that movie where Lugosi calls up at Wood and says, you know, Eddie, come over here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill myself. And, uh, you know, Depp runs over to Lugosi's house, or to, to Landau's house. He knocks on the door, and there's Landau's Lugosi with the gun in his hand. There's this moment when when Ed Woodward, you know, sort of convinces him to put the gun down, and this look of sadness comes up in Landau's eyes that I, I, th I think is probably one of the most intense moments in a movie that, I, that I've ever seen, that I can recollect. And even just thinking about it now, I feel emotional about it. He was so perfect. He indeed won the award for Best Supporting Actor that year. And i got to tell you, Gene, I remember thinking to myself that year, that if they didn't give him that award, I was never going to entertain watching the Academy Awards ever again because it would have just been a travesty. So it, it, it's a beautiful movie, and for those of you who haven't seen it, who want to see a really beautiful piece of movie making, and Bill Murray in one of the most messed up roles ever, you got to see Ed Wood. It's, it's a great film. Coming up next, Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project on the Paracast. I'm repeating we're not in Kansas anymore. 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Dr. Greer, we've heard lots and lots about the Disclosure Project, but for those of our listeners who aren't familiar, can you tell us how it all began and what it's all about? Well, uh, I started the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, CSETI, in 1990, and the way the Disclosure Project came about is that between 1990 and 1993, we had started what's called the CE5 initiative, which is when we would send teams of people out to where UFOs had been seen and uh, try to establish communication or contact with them. And subsequently, we did make contact with uh, these UFOs in Mexico, in Florida, in Belgium, and various places around the world. In England, we had about a 100-foot diameter disc of a hover in the field with us uh, that was witnessed by many people. We decided that at a certain point that this sort of interplanetary diplomacy effort needed to be uh, ratcheted up to uh, having the matter disclosed properly and ending the secrecy uh, surrounding the subject. And so in 1993, uh, we had a gathering uh, actually here in Virginia, we're not far from where I live now, uh, with uh, some people uh, connected to uh, the executive branch and to the Pentagon and what have you to discuss, you know, how can we do this? And we started a project at that time to identify what you might call whistleblowers or, or top secret military and intelligence and, and, and a few corporate witnesses who had actually uh, been present during uh, government-related UFO events, uh, radar trackings, uh, jets being scrambled, projects where these objects had been studied or had been shot down and then studied. Uh, and uh, initially, we only had about a dozen or so of these witnesses, and uh, it then grew into having uh, uh, several dozen, and at this point, we have over 450 of these military witnesses. So in 1993, it's around that time when we, we began to investigate this matter, um, uh, people close to then-President Clinton asked us to do uh, briefings for his CIA director, R. James Woolsey, and uh, Clinton's National Security Council people and so we put together briefing materials for them and uh, worked very diligently trying to encourage the Clinton administration to move towards an executive order to disclose this subject of course after I had met with the uh, CIA director and by the way all this is described in, in the new book uh, we just put out called Hidden Truth Forbidden Knowledge uh, that people can get at uh, disclosureproject.org uh, what happened is that a good friend of the president came to our home and said well you know <laughs> The president and, and his staff are very interested in this and are very supportive of this subject coming out, but they're afraid that if they do what you're advising, he'll end up like Jack Kennedy. And I burst out laughing, actually, hmm. thinking the man was joking at that time. And uh, this was uh, early 94, because we had briefed uh, the CIA director, uh, Clinton CIA director, Woolsey, in uh, December of 1993. And uh, but it turns out uh, this very close friend of the president. 
said, no, we're not kidding, and that the people keeping the secret are very ruthless, and uh, we really don't think the president is going to be able to do anything about it without taking enormous risks. So uh, at that point, we moved it into the Congress, and I began to meet with members of the Senate Intelligence Committee and Appropriations Committee and House National Security Committee uh, and others, and uh, Burton, who is the head of the House Government Reform and Oversight Committee, uh, very interested and actually came to the briefings we did in 1997 uh, for Congress. And But there, too, uh, these people were all very interested in the subject, but they didn't want to do anything. And so what we found was that between 1993 and the year 2000, that there was enormous interest and that we were able to do a lot of education on the subject to people who, frankly, uh, are highly placed people in government and the military who are out of the loop of, of the group running the secrecy. But when you ask them to actually do anything that requires any kind of leadership or courage, they sort of run with their tail between their legs, which is not too atypical for Washington. So we, <laughs> to be quite blunt. Well, that's uh, typical for Washington. We've seen that happen for a long, long time. Sure. I mean, it's a, you know, courage, as John McCain would say, is the indispensable uh, virtue that is sorely lacking in our society. So then in 2001, of course, um, we said, well, look, we're just going to go ahead and do this ourselves. So we went and videotaped and created a transcript of the first 110 of these uh, top secret military and intelligence witnesses um, who at that point were willing to come forward unilaterally without the cover of a congressional subpoena. So uh, those uh, came forward and we had a very large event at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. that was uh, covered on, on the world's media briefly until, of course, the intelligence community called up the media and said, take this down, which is exactly what happened. I can tell you about how that was actually covered up subsequently. But these uh, witnesses, by the way, are uh, in a, a book called Disclosure uh, that has about 69 of them, I believe, that are uh, whose testimony and transcripts of their testimony and government documents are in a book called Disclosure. It's an almost 600-page book that also people can, can get at DisclosureProject.org. So uh, from that event, what happened is that we identified even more people who ranking from three-star generals in the Air Force to others who who were following this and following what we were doing, that we have subsequently identified uh, as witnesses. And you know, we're still advocating that these matters be taken seriously by the Congress. But you know, so far, none of them have wanted to open up hearings on the issue. So uh, what I tell people is that the Disclosure Project and those people out there who support this kind of effort will have to do the leadership on this because I don't believe uh, that you're going to see it coming out of uh, any sort of U.S. government sector. Now, there's some promising entrees in Europe. There's some promising entrees uh, and openings in Canada. As you know, I recently spent a day with uh, the former Minister of Defense Canada, uh, uh, Paul Hellyer, who has come out very publicly in support of disclosure and in, in getting this information out, and has spoken very bluntly about the fact that there's the government that we elect and there's the permanent government that's a, a very shadowy and a powerful entity that pretty much does what it wants to, irrespective of, of the will of the people or the will of its elected representatives. So I think that we're, we're seeing that there is a lot of growing support for having this information come out. What we're, we're advocating is that more of these military and intelligence witnesses need to step forward separate from any government initiative and that we need to keep this matter out in front of the public because the issue isn't really about uh, you know whether there are little gray or green men out there. It's really about uh, who's running the world, why is this 
kept secret and what's behind the secrecy. You know, I always tell people that in this uh, uh, three-hour meeting I had with a sitting CIA director that I spent 10 minutes on the evidence, and he said, yeah, I know this exists, and he said point blank that uh, he and his wife had seen one of these when they were younger in New Hampshire in the 60s, that he knew the UFOs did exist, but what he wanted to know was why were they lying to the President of the United States and to the CIA director? How come he didn't have access to those projects? What were they hiding? What were the technologies? And what's the agenda behind all this secrecy? So those questions are the big questions, not, you know, cataloging another sighting event, which is what most UFO people do. And I, you know, I, I told the CIA director very directly that the, the secrecy has to do with the geopolitical power in the world and who is actually running it. Because there's about two or 300 uh, families and corporations that pretty much run the show. And uh, when you're talking about uh, the kinds of technologies that are behind the UFO and the UFO propulsion system, we're talking about technologies that would end completely the need for oil and gas and coal and uh, the $200 trillion asset base that these handful of people own that are sitting in the ground and which they are selling to the world to keep the world uh, centrally controlled and centrally addicted to fossil fuels. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. I'll tell you one thing that the oil companies wouldn't like <laughs> to see their business go away. But let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We have Dr. Stephen Greer from the Disclosure Project on the show right now. If you go to DisclosureProject.org, DisclosureProject.org, you can learn more about the thing. You can make a donation, learn about the various writings they have. They also are selling a book called Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Dr. Greer, let's look into this whole thing here. I could see where if you had a quote-unquote free energy source that may be presented by alien technology, that the oil companies wouldn't want that. Well, I think that the, you know, the oil companies and the big uh, uh, industrial concerns, it's not just oil companies, it's actually aerospace corporations and other industrial interests, and, and more importantly, uh, certain other financial uh, interests around the world. It isn't a matter of whether they could sell an alternate energy generator. They could. But let's analyze this for a moment. If you're driving a Suburban, a Chevrolet Suburban, I mean, that engine's maybe worth $5,000. But over the life of that vehicle, it's going to use at today's prices somewhere around $60,000 in oil and the gasoline in it. What you're talking about are technologies that extract energy from what Dr. Tom Bearden would call the quantum vacuum or the so-called zero-point energy field. And when you do that, you're basically creating a perturbation of the flux field that's at the baseline of energy in the structure of space. And I don't mean outer space. I mean space right here in this room or anywhere. 
square. And uh, it's been calculated that about every cubic centimeter of space has enough energy to run the Earth for a day. Well, what that does is it cuts off the need for a supply line of a centralized financial empire and fossil fuel supply line for electricity, for coal, for uh, natural gas, and for oil, uh, for gasoline and diesel. That is, of course, uh, a huge part of the power structure in the world today. It's also, uh, the flip side of it, a big part of the problem in the world today. I mean, uh, you know, we're decamped in the, the Middle East not because we like the sands of Saudi Arabia, because that's where we get most of our uh, oil. And, and we're having uh, both polar ice caps are melting and global warming. And the, the longer picture view of this is that you've got about 80% of the world's population living in a substandard manner in, in poverty, because if everyone lived like you and I do in air conditioning and vehicles and what have you, six billion people live like we do here in America and Western Europe, uh, we would be quickly out of fossil fuels. But before that would happen, we would completely contaminate and collapse the biosphere. So we have an, an unsustainable situation. And the good news about that is that about half of this covert control group that used to be called MJ-12 is now on the side of disclosing this. In fact, uh, when I was briefing the Clinton administration and the CIA director back in the 90s, uh, I had two independent people associated with that group confirm to me that a third of that committee of two or 300 folks favor bringing this stuff out. Of course, they were a minority. Now I think it's close to half, and there's a growing level of support and a growing fracture along uh, these lines, because I think that while some of the people who are sitting on the secrecy want to hold on to it as long as they can, there are more forward-looking people in that group who are saying, look, you know, we've sort of had 100 or 150 years of this sort of industrial era of fossil fuels and coal and gas, and we really do need to move on here or we're going to terminate uh, our civilization on this planet. It's actually good. It's, it's in our favor. Now, let's look at the history of the Disclosure Project from there. So you were briefing the Clinton administration in the 90s, and basically nothing really happened publicly, although lots of people saw UFOs and everything. So now we turn over to the Bush administration. Has it gotten worse or better? Well, of course, it's uh, it's worse in the sense that Cheney and certainly Rumsfeld have been involved in these covert uh, efforts for many, many years, if not decades. And uh, unfortunately, what that means is that, uh, you know, there's not a, a lot of support. I don't think uh, W, uh, George W. Bush himself, has much, if any, knowledge of the matter, quite frankly. Uh, now, his father did. We do know that uh, his, his father, uh, when he was CIA director, knew of the matter, and that when Jimmy Carter, uh, the incoming president uh, from the 76 election, asked Father Bush uh, about this as, as the outgoing CIA director, he was uh, flat out told that he wouldn't be told anything and that he could go and see if he could find something else, else from the Congressional Research Service. And I have uh, independent people who can confirm that that's what happened to Carter when he tried to find out about this matter. So uh, it's it's not structured the way people think. A lot of people assume that because you're the president or a CIA director, you're going to have access to this information. Dr. Greer, I'd like to address some specific findings of the Disclosure Project as far as what you found out about the identity, the source, and the purpose of extraterrestrial visits to to the planet Earth. What what specific details have have been disclosed to you that ring true and compelling to you? Well, it, the, the weight of the evidence, and this comes from from two two main rivers of of of, of information. One is our direct 
operations where we go out in the field to observe these objects and make contact with them. The other is the sources we have uh, that are highly placed and, and multiple and corroborating that have been involved in these projects over uh, many, many years and from different agencies and, and operations. Mm-hmm. And that is that there are multiple extraterrestrial civilizations involved with observing the Earth this time. Uh, there is no evidence that they are hostile, but there is a great deal of evidence that they're concerned with human hostility. And let me explain what I mean by that. For example, we have multiple independent corroborating witnesses to uh, these uh, extraterrestrial uh, vehicles uh, monitoring our intercontinental ballistic missile, nuclear facilities, nuclear weapon storage areas, and um, being very concerned about our nuclear weapons testing. Now, this would indicate that at the time that we began to be able to explore space and have these uh, very destructive weapons that could destroy not only the entire Earth, but potentially another planet, that they became rather concerned with with the direction that we were taking. And I think that from the 40s and 50s onward, there was a very clear uh, effort by these civilizations to monitor this and at times to indicate that they would not allow us to go too far out into space with that capability. For example, um, while uh, many people have reported that there are uh, advanced prototypes that Lockheed Martin and Northrop have built based on studying these sorts of uh, propulsion and energy systems, so-called electrogravitic and magnetogravitic systems, our ability to go too far out into space with them have been uh, truncated or or limited by the fact that uh, we're not really welcomed out in space very far until we become a peaceful civilization. What I think is happening is that if you were to objectively observe uh, humanity over the last hundred years where we've gone from basically horse and buggy to uh, hydrogen bombs and and rockets and covertly these anti-gravity so-called alien reproduction vehicles that are extremely advanced and which uh, the head of Lockheed Skunk Works told uh, three people on my team can go up to and beyond the speed of light and literally, quote, dematerialize and appear in another point in uh, space. I think that with those sort of technologies, and yet with our unchecked tendency towards warfare and division, that this is something of great concern. And so the big picture, as I see it, isn't that there's any kind of uh, hostile threat towards uh, Earth, but that human hostility and our advancing technological prowess, which has outstripped our social and spiritual development, is something of some serious concern out there. And uh, so that's sort of one of the assessments that we've made from this. I think the other, and the flip side of it, is that from our experiments of going out as a group of, uh, as it were, ambassadors and, and going out peacefully to try to interact with these beings and, and their spacecraft, what we have found is that they have been very interested in doing that because we're doing it in the consciousness of understanding that you know we want to exist peacefully in the universe together. So that when human race reaches what I think is the entry point of being an interplanetary society, and that is a, an element of, of world peace and stability, we'll be welcomed with open arms. But until we reach that point, uh, there's a certain degree of containment that's necessary. And, uh, you know, it's, many times humans, of course, we're like the frogs in the boiling pot and don't realize we're about to be cooked. <laughs> don't look around and see what the hell's going on here. And if you look at what's going on in the Middle East, uh, the sort of inner religious and inter-ethnic war 
warfare uh, and savagery where... Yeah, there's no rationality to any of it. It's all completely emotional and devoid of logic. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me, before you continue with the answer, let me tell everybody, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking today to Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. If you go to disclosureproject.org you'll learn more information also check out his new book Hidden Truth Forbidden Knowledge and we'll talk about that in a moment David Dr. Greer um, based on what you've just said how do these bits of information interact or intersect with the many reports of abductions and genetic manipulation and experimentation that that would almost suggest to me that if these visitations have been occurring for some amount of time that there is some sort of an agenda that's not completely benevolent what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think there's a lot of disinformation in this arena. For example, I have a document from a uh, institute that does a lot of work for these shadowy programs that talks about the stagecraft used by humans to simulate contact with, quote, aliens under these sort of scenarios. For example, uh, there's a great deal of work that was done by Martin Cannon and others in the 80s and, and, and that our group has discovered where many of the things that are the most frightening seem to be the most xenophobic accounts of contact with these uh, UFOs are actually completely stagecraft by shadowy paramilitary type operations that have as an agenda uh, disinforming the public scaring the public and laying the foundation for conflict in space. What I think is going on, and Werner Von Braun had said this to his assistant uh, prior to his death, is that there was a concerted effort to, uh, in the sense of psychological warfare, to eventually lay the foundation for justifying a massive and exponential growth in the military industrial laboratory complex into space with uh, space weapons that would engage in conflict with other planetary systems, or at least present that as a possibility, and that that kind of propaganda uh, is something that is very much mixed in with UFO lore and mythology. What I've found is that, uh, for example, in some of the men I've interviewed who've been on these abduction squads, uh, they have used what is called stagecraft and alien reproduction vehicles that would fool 99.9% of the population as being an ET craft to engage hmm. in things that look like abductions but aren't uh, real abductions by anything off planet. And this has been designed, uh, according to the folks who I've interviewed, to create a certain psychological warfare nexus so that people eventually will accept the cost of engaging in conflict in space. So I'm a big skeptic about a great deal of the information out there because 
in my opinion, about 90% of the data that's been put into the public domain uh, has been done through cutouts, as they call them, to disinform the public, but also to create a certain psychological reaction that is the kind of propaganda. It's the oldest uh, sort of uh, plan in the world. I mean, when Hitler wanted to lay the foundation for the final solution to the Jewish problem, there were all the propaganda about, you know, these horrible caricatures of Jews eating babies and abducting children and and all this stuff. I think they've taken a page out of uh, the propaganda of, of that kind of regime and put it into civilian in ufology for a specific psychological reaction. So I think that we have to be very, very careful. Um, I would not say this when, in 1990 when I first started looking into this matter, but having independently had confirmed to me by people who have been involved in those kind of special ops, there's no doubt in my mind that a great deal of what's reported as a, quote, alien event is actually man-made and, and with a very specific agenda behind it. Let me tell you a story here, and it's something I mentioned on our message boards, and that is in the 1950s, there was a contactee by the name of Howard Menger, a sign painter from Highbridge, New Jersey, and he went on the Long John Noble radio show, and maybe you remember that show, Dr. Greer or not, but he claimed to have met Venusians in New Jersey. And this was typical of the kind of contact cases of that era where they'd see these entities or beings wearing silvery uniforms, kind of like the Michael Rennie character in the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, except that they had long hair. Okay. Now, Jim Mosley and I had lunch with Howard Menger about 1965 or 1966, and Menger says he thinks that the people he met were actually government agents of some kind, that he was involved in some sort of governmental experiment. So the question is raised here, and I'm not saying that Howard Menger was telling the truth or not, although he seemed sincere at the time. Is it possible that some of these so-called direct meetings, person-to-person contacts that have gone through the UFO era from the 1950s through today were, in fact, disinformation projects of some sort. I think most of them have been. And, you know, it it doesn't endear me to some people who are highly invested in a certain uh, belief system to say this, but (laughs) I cannot ignore the the fact that multiple uh, folks that we have met with who have actually been in on these meetings, for example, one of the top secret guys who had worked on a multi-agency level with this matter, who was at the briefings for, that we did for Congress in 1997, it stated that he had been on planning meetings where uh, the so-called uh, alien reproduction vehicles that are made at Lockheed Skunk Works and, and Northrop and a few and SAIC and a few other corporations that are involved with this um, have been used to do exactly what you're suggesting to simulate contact events, but also that they had a plan to eventually use them to simulate a sort of Independence Day. You know the movie Independence Day, sort of a An attack, so that mm-hmm. people stampeded into a sort of 9/11 hysteria and fear, so that they would then go along with a increasingly centralized military junta running this planet that would then be able to convince not just Americans but the whole world to spend enormous amounts of resources to put weapon systems into militarized space. So I think that there's been a long-term agenda. It's certainly been operating, I think, since the mid-50s and 60s to do this. I think it's a long-term psychological warfare 
Frontier project. And this is why I think we have to be very careful about the facile uh, jumping to conclusions about the alien agenda based on uh, the sort of accounts that people relate. Because I think that there's, if it was just a pure database of actual ET encounters, I'd say, well, okay. But I know that's not the case. And I know that there has been a lot of deception and a lot of disinformation. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer, and he heads the Disclosure Project. And you can learn more from DisclosureProject.org, his new book, Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge. We'll have links to all the stuff at the Paracast.com website. On your site, you have this title, This is the Smoking Gun, and learn more as a clickable item. So what, my friend, is the smoking gun? It's the weight of the testimony of dozens and dozens of independently corroborating top-secret witnesses documents and other cases that we've put together, which is the first time that much insider information has been put together in one place. You know, if the New York Times has a controversial story, they want it confirmed by three sources. We have, uh, at this point, several hundred independent sources confirming the reality of the subject, and yet what you see in the major media is this whole matter being completely redlined or mm-hmm. ridiculed completely ignored. Of course, that's by design as well, because the big mainstream media, as it's called, is uh, an utterly controlled asset of this group. And uh, I can proven that by uh, getting information to top producers at ABC News and others, only to see them systematically ordered to sanitize that data and, and the smoking gun uh, radar tracings that we have from the FAA and the documents and the testimony of these uh, decorated top secret to military and intelligence people from their broadcast. And this has happened at all the major networks and, and, and big media. And this is a very great concern for anyone who is concerned about freedom and democracy and the, the, the alleged free press of the United States. It is, in fact, not a free press and it's highly corruptible. And has been very corrupted over the years by these interests. As a corollary to this, back in the 1950s and 1960s, it was a UFO organization called NICAP that right. for a number of years was headed by Major Donald Kehoe, a right. retired major in the Marine Corps, somebody I knew very casually, and I have a few stories to tell about that. But anyway, during the era when Major Kehoe was head of NICAP, they were pushing, they said, for congressional hearings in the subject. And anytime Congress even discussed it. It was something that was done in rather a half-hearted fashion. But one significant thing about NICAP was the fact that a former member of the CIA, former head of the CIA, Admiral Hillencoder, who I believe was also supposedly on the MJ-12 panel, he was a member of the board of directors of NICAP. And there were rumors back in the 60s, and I don't know how true they were, but certainly we had our share of conspiracy theories then, that NICAP itself was a plant by the government 
government to focus all our attention on this group and on the goal of congressional hearings when everything was really being done elsewhere. Did you ever have any feeling about this? Well, I don't know that that was the total case. It's certainly, I know that NICAP was infiltrated by people in the government who, who eventually saw that it would be shut down and dissolved, and that's exactly what happened. As far as the Admiral, Admiral Roscoe Hillenketter, you know, there's a letter that he wrote, I believe in 1960 or 61, where he flat out states that the matter, um, the secrecy surrounding the matter is a threat to the national security. I think there have been people all along who uh, have known about the subject at, at a very highly classified level who have been appalled at what happened in the 1950s. Uh, and what I mean is the deliberate hijacking of the subject into a privatized, transnational, unaccountable, and largely a corporate world uh, and away from uh, the proper oversight of the President of the United States at that time, Eisenhower, who was stabbed in the back, and subsequently Jack Kennedy and others. And I think that this is something which uh, the people I've spoken to who have been involved with this committee and who have known about things at that level do have a great deal of concern about. They don't know quite how to fix it because they painted themselves into a very black corner and have kind of nailed the walls shut around them. So, in fact, I'll be quite honest, there have been folks who have said, look, you know, we would really like to see your attempts to get this matter disclosed succeed because uh, they're, they're really in a state of free-fall over uh, much of the management of this, and it's becoming an increasingly big management problem around the world amongst the folks who do know about it. Uh, also, morale is very low within that group. And um, I think that uh, what we have to understand is that it's not a monolithic group of people keeping this secret. There are people who are involved for various reasons, and many of them don't know what a lot of the agendas are. They're not read into or controlling the pseudo-abduction cases, for example. Uh, There's a a group of these folks who I'm quite convinced are sort of lunatic French eschatologists who who are uh, eschatology is the study of how the world's going to end, and they have sort of a fundamentalist eschatological view of things and would like to see the final war or Armageddon happen in space so that Jesus will return and uh, have all kinds of strange and kooky and fanatical uh, agendas. And so um, I think some of the more uh, progressive-minded people associated with this group who we have been informing about uh, these agendas and who they've subsequently confirmed the agendas are rather appalled. I'm reminded that, uh, you know, back in a few years ago, I did a briefing for the uh, head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and and this man uh, had been provided uh, a document that we had acquired that was a a secret document that had not been declassified, and it had the code numbers and project code names for some, at that time in the 90s, uh, some projects dealing with this issue. And he was actually able, this admiral was actually able to identify a group as it were, within the Pentagon that was uh, listed on this uh, secret document. Um, what, when this admiral contacted this group, basically he was told, sir, you don't have a need to know. And he was demanding to be briefed onto this subject. So by the time I got to the Pentagon with uh, my team of people and some of our military folks to brief him, because 
this this particular admiral was completely out of the loop. And this is what you know the conspiracy theorists take it way too far. They think that everyone who's a flag officer, or a general, or an admiral, or, or a high-ranking government official knows about this subject. Most of them, in fact, do not. And he was furious that he was being shut out of these sort of uh, uh, projects. And uh, this is a man who was no stranger to the sort of black project world, having been you know, an admiral and also the head of intelligence for the Joint Staff. So I think that what we have found as we've gone around the world meeting with him and people like him in other countries is that there's a great deal of support for disclosure. This man turned to me and said, look, if there's any way you can get this out into the public, you have my blessing to do it. And anyone who knows about this, that you can get to speak publicly, they can do so as far as I'm concerned with impunity because of this group is rogue and illegal. So in other words, and that, by the way, legally, this is one of the chief points we've made, is that because this matter is being run extra-constitutionally, they cannot cite the National Security Act of 1947 or mm -hmm. any of the oaths people have signed to keep it secret, because if it's a criminal enterprise, a priori, it cannot cite the rule of law to protect itself. It's just like any other contract. It's null and void. And so this is the point that we have made to that group and to the men and women who wanted to come forward and testify with us, and some of whom still currently have top-secret clearances and have still come forward. I think that uh, it's a complex issue, and I encourage people to look at, you know, we have a one-hour, two-hour, and four-hour, three separate uh, videos and DVDs that have the people's testimony on it that people can look at at disclosureproject.org. And I think that people ought to look at that and consider the weight of what they're saying. And, and when they do, they're going to realize, I think the public quickly is going to realize uh, that this is why I believe Admiral Roscoe Hillenkeeter uh, stated that this was uh, that the management of the issue and the secrecy around the issue was a threat to our national security, not the actual UFOs themselves. And I think that uh, this is why it needs to be disclosed and why the uh, organs of, of the legitimate government of the so-called we the people need to get their hands back on, on this matter and firmly, the reins firmly in their hands and control it. So far, they have not had the courage to do that, but I think that eventually it will have to happen, and, and ultimately that's the goal of disclosing this information. I mean, in the meanwhile, I think that the, we, the citizens, have a right to put this information out there, discuss it, and also um, I'm heading up a team of scientists who are working on building some prototypes of uh, energy systems that would demonstrate the type of energy that can run the planet free of fossil fuels. And, and uh, a lot of people think that that's a diversion from this issue when they really don't understand that that's one of the chief reasons for the secrecy. And eventually, we need to just take the bull by the horns here and bring these sort of things out directly. And so we're heading up a group right now of some very brilliant scientists that I'm working with uh, to uh, design uh, energy and propulsion technologies that will uh, be a replacement for oil and gas and coal, and also will prove the science and the propulsion uh, capabilities behind what people call UFOs. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 
for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one eight 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 UFO MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box one one zero one three Marina Del Rey, California nine zero two nine five. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box one one zero one three Marina Del Rey, California. 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're proud to welcome Dr. Stephen Greer to our guest list. His site, DisclosureProject.org. DisclosureProject.org. His new book is called The Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge. I have one more question I want to ask, and I know David's got a bunch, and that is disinformation. How do we separate the wheat from the chaff? We get so many of these contradictory claims, and since we've become immersed in the UFO field as a result of this show and as a result of my prior experiences and David's private experience, we've seen so many contradictory claims, it makes the mind boggle. So mm. how do you separate the real stuff from the fake stuff, from the disinformation stuff? Well, I, this is an ex- excellent question, and I, 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 I wrote about this many years ago when I said, you know, is it real or is it Memorex? And I think that, unfortunately, the ability of the counterintelligence community to stage events, put out disinformation is so good that unless you have an ability to penetrate those operations, which is what we set out to do in the early 90s, and to learn from people who have been on them so that you will have some kind of a database, comparative database, to know what the human capabilities are and what the human agendas are, there's no way for you to then discover what the actual extraterrestrial events are and what their agendas are. Most people go after this as if it's one thing happening when in reality there are multiple things happening. And so the database becomes corrupted, and I think that it takes an enormous amount of work and quite a bit of uh, networking, uh, and I don't mean with with civilian UFO researchers, but uh, in addition to that, not to exclude that, but in addition to that, these deep-sourced insiders who have been in these projects and have uh, will be able to then describe. And this is what we've done in our assessments. If you look at what we've put out there in uh, all three of the books that are available on the website is that we expose what the agenda is, the disinformation agenda, and what kind of phenomena they're capable of hoaxing, and uh, also what the extraterrestrial uh, phenomena is and how it presents. And it's really not that difficult, <laughs> Once, but you've got to set up that paradigm first, because if you don't, you're going to take hook, line, and sinker the disinformation, which I think is the dominant amount of information that's put out there 
there by the media and by the uh, mm -hmm. uh, civilian community. David, Dr. Greer, I have a, a comment slash suggestion and then a question. The comment is that um, in the interest of doing what I'm, I'm very impressed you're trying to do, disclosing this important information, I, I do understand the you know, sort of the reality of having to maintain a living and support a family. But I would suggest to you the consideration of taking a large amount of these video testimonies, which I think probably would provide more of, a, of an impact for people to begin to understand to what it is you're presenting. I'd like you to consider taking that video or some significant amount of it and making it available on an Internet-type um, environment such as YouTube or Google Video. I think that this would be a, a tremendous Absolutely. boon. I think about two or three years, we had a site that was hosting the testimony mm -hmm. of these. Um, of course, it was expensive to pay for all that uh, bandwidth. And um, the National Press Club video um, is also viewable at DisclosureProject.org, free of charge to anyone who wants to see it. And several million people have seen that two-hour video, which is an enormous amount of band use. One of the things I would say to people also is that we could get a lot more of this out there if there were more contributions. We are a nonprofit. And sure. uh, we sort of hover around barely having any funds to do this. And, right. and uh, contrary to what people might think, there's no money in doing this. It's not as if there's some great uh, grant, uh, granting entity <laughs> out there providing the funds for this. So people who want right. to do this. I would say, you know, uh, put your money where your mouth is and make some contributions or, or make it happen. We certainly have tried to do it to the extent that we can afford to host that kind of bandwidth. Sure, bandwidth is very expensive, but the point of things like YouTube and Google Video is that um, there is no bandwidth cost for you at that point. Uh, all of the bandwidth is borne by those servers, so that even taking the um, stuff that you have up on your website now and transferring it to YouTube or Google Video, you wouldn't incur any bandwidth with costs and that's one of the great things about those methods of getting video out there they essentially have really broken down the barriers of the, the the cost situation in terms of getting a large amount of video content on the web so that's why I specifically mentioned YouTube and or Google video that would actually solve the bandwidth issue for you completely it would essentially not cost you anything um, maybe you should uh, suggest that to our webmaster who I mean I don't deal with any of that because uh -huh. I'm just a country doctor here in Virginia so. <laughs> I don't pretend to be a techno geek wizard, but um, I have no knowledge of this site you're referring to. But I think that it's a, it's a good suggestion if indeed it's uh, it's free and not corruptible. We would absolutely. Absolutely, and I'd be happy to help you with that. Um, the question I have for you is, uh, you sound to me like you're someone who's uh, highly intelligent and motivated about getting to some you know, real truth here. Why? What, what, what experience is it that made you take what is obviously a, a very hot, uh, hot potato and, uh, and run with it? What, why are you doing this? Well, this is really the the answer uh, is is in this new book, Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge. It's a, that book is really a memoir about what we experienced and uh, what I experienced as a child uh, and the contact I had starting when I was eight or nine years old. You know, my uncle was the senior project engineer who built the lunar module uh, that took uh, the first man to the moon. And around that time, when I was a, a little boy, uh, I had a sighting of one of these 
uh, objects of outside Charlotte, North Carolina, and I write about this in the book, um, the new book that's out, and subsequently over a period of time had a, a number of pretty amazing contact experiences, and uh, the, the, my interest in this isn't uh, intellectual only, it's, it's that I I'm, I'm, I'm know that this is real, and I know that there is an actual extraterrestrial involvement with observing Earth and actually wanting to help our situation, and I also know upfront personal about the disinformation plan that's out there and so what I've tried to put in this book is, is the experience there are the experiences that led me to be motivated to make this happen uh, and I think that it's uh, something that was made very clear to me when I was young uh, when I when I was 17 I had an ex a near-death experience and uh, having been raised a very devout atheist uh, my parents didn't believe in anything you couldn't put in a test tube um, you know this was quite a transformation and uh, I began to experience, uh, if you will, this sort of universal aspect of, of consciousness or mind that I think is the central nexus through which uh, interplanetary species are communicating through using very advanced electronics. And so after that experience, after this near-death experience, which was quite beautiful and transformative, and I write about it in this book, I had an experience uh, with an ET craft, and it was involved mainly the secrets around consciousness and the consciousness interfacing with technology and with the communication systems. And, uh, you know, as I began to experiment with that, what we found is that, in fact, uh, the, the, the big sciences that are going to happen over the next thousand or ten thousand or hundred thousand years are all going to be centered in resonant fields that go beyond the speed of light and cross over into the world of thought and consciousness. And uh, I began to experiment with that as a 17, 18 year old boy and uh, had some astonishing contact experiences with ETs and with ET craft at close range. And uh, it was something that was quite eye-opening to me, having been raised in this very orthodox, scientific, reductionist, uh, intellectual family. Uh, and I think that one of the things that I've learned from all of that is that most of what there is to know scientifically is never discussed. And although I'm heartened when, for example, during this meeting with the CIA director, his wife came, and, and uh, Dr. Sue Wolsey was the National uh, Academy of Sciences chief operating officer. And the, one of the few questions she asked in this three-hour meeting was she looked at me right in the eye. She said, how are they communicating across interstellar distances? And I gulped and I thought, God, do I tell her a lie or do I tell her the truth? <laughs> if I tell her the truth, I'll lose all my credibility. And if I tell her a lie, I can't live with myself. So I said, well, you know, she asked the question. I'm going to tell her the truth. So, And I recount this story in this book, uh, Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge. And, and I said, look, uh, Dr. Woolsey, they're not using... Uh, electromagnetic signals that travel the speed of light. They're using technologies that interface directly with coherent thought and consciousness where they bypass linear space-time and through a resonance field that's beyond the speed of light and that is involving thought and consciousness, but it's still technological, is, is appearing across vast distances of space instantaneously. And she looked at me and she says, you know, I thought it had to be something like that. Mm -hmm.
Whoa. So, Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg <laughs> and David Vietney, and we're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. Go to disclosureproject.org to learn more and about his new book, which he's discussing here called Hidden Truth Forbidden Knowledge. All right, David? Uh, Dr. Greer, what you just said is really fascinating to me because it has some real relevancy in terms of the intersection with a relatively new field of physics, uh, string theory. Uh, what you're suggesting, string theory, even though there is some contention about its um, its validity, clearly it, it does seem to uh, encompass what you've just described, a, a, a methodology of communication that really bypasses our current understanding um, of you know physical realities of, of wave transference. Uh, it sounds to me like th that's actually very compelling. That, of course, makes me think about another topic, which is that you know UFOs and uh, alien encounters are not the only area of paranormal research we talk about on the show. And um, in trying to understand the nature of reality, which is you know really what it, we're talking about, this is all a subset of trying to understand what's going on around us. This would also, and I don't want to get too woo-woo uh, on us here. <laughs> Gene will tell you that I, I'm... Uh, my role here is sort of uh, to play sort of the skeptic that will get us into trouble, as we've just gotten into trouble recently with a, a recent guest who made some outrageous claims, and I had to, to go and prove him wrong. I'm, I'm not interested in proving you wrong. Uh, He's what you're not saying, the loose cannon. I wanted to assure you of that. <laughs> well, I... I <laughs> well, I'm just curious about if there are technologies that would allow communication uh, in ways that transcend what we currently understand about the physical nature of the dimensions of our universe we understand. Does that suggest that, in essence, there would be the possibility, much as Nikola Tesla believed, that there would be technologies that could even transcend what we consider to be the realm of life versus death? I mean, I, again, this is sort of an outrageous question, but oh, based no, on what... All. I think it's completely true. I mean, one of the, one of the if you read this uh, new book that's come out, I encourage you to read it, and maybe we'll have another interview after you've read it, is uh, I have an account in there from a man who worked uh, with Ben Rich at Lockheed, and he contacted me uh, himself, and, you know, he subsequently became a witness for us. But what he really wanted to talk to me about was that uh, back in the 60s, he was practicing to uh, do something which is called astral projection, which is when the so-called astral or etheric body leaves the physical body and, and journeys, which is actually mm -hmm. what a, the dream is, by the way. Um, now, what was interesting is that he told me he was practicing to do this, and one day he succeeded to do it, and he left his body, went up to the ceiling of his house, out into the atmosphere and slammed into the side of an extraterrestrial vehicle with these ETs on board. And he said this was absolutely not a dream. It was a very real. And he said what was strange is that they saw him and he saw the ET. Mm -hmm. He wasn't in a physical body. And I said, yes, but you have to understand, when an extraterrestrial vehicle is either going through interstellar space or is in our atmosphere and is resonating at a type of energy field that is beyond the light barrier, what I call the crossing point of light in my uh, treatise on this issue, they cross into something which the mystics would have called the etheric or astral energy field, which is, it is physical, but it is highly, uh, intimately 
associated with thought and consciousness. And in mm-hmm. fact, you go in through interstellar space with a spacecraft. You are not in a solid materialized form, but you have crossed over into a form of energy that is close to what some people would call what ghosts are or what the astral or etheric energy is, but it's technologically mediated. It's technologically created and maintained. And that's what this man encountered. And he, he looked at me, he says, you know, I wondered if that's what we're really dealing with. I said, of mm-hmm. course, because you're not dealing with things. You know, there's no way you're going to stay dragging along in the material 3D universe at subluminal velocities and get anywhere. I mean, we can barely even get out of our own solar system that way, never <laughs> mind interstellar or intergalactic distances. So any of these technologies we're talking about that are genuinely extraterrestrial and not sort of look-alike things coming out of Lockheed and Northrop are dealing with te- with a, a spectrum of reality, I call it. Uh, some would call it other dimensions. I think that's a misnomer. But a spectrum of reality that goes into a resonance field beyond the speed of light, beyond the speed of atomic subparticles, into this other region of energy, which, which is actually folded within the material cosmos. Mm-hmm. And enables this sort of transfer through space-time at many multiples of the speed of light. And many of the really high strangeness things that people have had with the actual ET craft are related to this kind of capability. Is this like sure. warp drive or something like that? No, no. It's, no. It's, I'm trying not to use the sort of a buzzword to confuse people. Uh, I know. I just want to clarify it for everybody. That's yeah, all. no, it's really, yeah, but it is something that, and this is the other thing, is that when you're in that state, if you're on a spacecraft that has shifted quantumly beyond the velocity of the speed of light, it is like being in a lucid dream. Anyone who's had an out-of-body experience or a lucid dream where they're flying around, you're conscious in it, it's very real, but it's a little altered state than, say, the waking state. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, and I think that, but we're dealing with it on a level where it is technologically maintained and reproducible. Uh, and Correct. this is something that, it, it gets into a bit of an arcane discussion, I know. But I think that's why it's very important to investigate this subject and, and also related sciences, because I think that the, 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 what's being shown to us through this entire extraterrestrial phenomenon is really a glimpse into some elegant sciences and, and I think the future of science on this planet. We recently had an old friend of mine, uh, Michael Miley, on the show, Dr. Greer, and we didn't specifically talk about this topic, but for many years, uh, Mike and I have been talking about exactly this topic, which is that um, if indeed there is this form of propulsion that allows interstellar travel, and if it has the ability of working in a different in a different context than what we consider to be, you know, standard propulsion, that it was very likely that many of the manifestations of paranormal activity that we relate to things like ghosts and spirits and and all of these things that we don't really, we sort of have these clean boxes for, but we kind of theorize that there would be a good amount of overlap between those type of phenomenon and the ability to travel potentially faster than light, and in fact, it, Mike and I had come to the conclusion, well, as far in as far as we could, you know, come to a conclusion, that indeed, um, if these beings were traveling in this realm, that this would give them access to what we would what we would call the afterlife, the continuum, um, and, and what you're saying sort of it, it verifies this for me. Again, there's no way to really prove this at this point with our 
technological limitations, but intuitively, this makes sense to me. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer. He heads the Disclosure Project. Go to disclosureproject.org for more information. Disclosureproject.org for more information. He's also author of a new book called Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge. Dr. Greer, you can go ahead with your answer. Well, I think that one of the things that we've uh, wanted to emphasize over the last two years, and which is uh, probably close to a third of this new book that you mentioned, is this concept of the cosmology, and that is how the cosmos is actually structured, all the way from the non-local quality of consciousness to what thought is, and the so-called etheric and astral level of thought and energy, to how that interfaces with the material physical cosmos. There's Mm -hmm. very good research done, you know, Dr. Robert John at the Peer Lab at Princeton and others have done things where people have affected physical engineering systems by thought and what have you. Now, how is that happening unless there's some intimate connection between consciousness and thought in the material cosmos? Well, there is, and it's intimately related. In fact, the true nature of mind, as Erwin Schrodinger said, is that the total number of minds in the universe is one. That is, it's a single It's a quantum hologram in which or out of which is phasing uh, various thought, uh, astral, and material forms. And there is a complete uh, intimate integration of the material linear space-time cosmos and the realms of consciousness and thought. Now, we have taken this into an experimental mode, and I talked to Dr. John at Princeton about this, on these expeditions. And, and in fact, we train people in doing this. We're going to be at Mount Shasta September 2nd. Uh, the 9th and, and here in Virginia at the end of September and early October and again in Palm Springs in November and people can come out here and do it but we basically train people to, to enter into a state of consciousness where they can do what's called remote viewing see where these ET craft are and in consciousness as well as other modalities we do use lasers and lights and, and, and electronic tones uh, contact them and then see if there's some phenomenon that comes to us while we're out under the stars up in Joshua Tree or on Mount Shasta or what have you. We have had amazing things happen where people just turn their mouths drop open. And what I have found, and this is why I think the head of Army Intelligence got very angry with me in the 90s, that we sort of discovered this Rosetta Stone of interstellar communication where there's this interface between technology and thought and consciousness, but not just random thought, certain type of coherent thought, like 
laser is coherent light that is actuated from a uh, expanded state of coherent consciousness. And this can be a very powerful modality for contact. Now, a lot of people hate for me to talk about that because it gets too out there too fast. But if you're dealing with something that's extraterrestrial and interstellar capable, you're not dealing with your granddad Volksmobile, let's face it. And you're certainly not dealing with radio signals like SETI is searching for, moving at the speed of light, you know, or what have you. You're dealing with technologies that are simply not 20th century Earth technologies. And so mm -hmm. we have to keep an open mind and I think create an empirical experimental paradigm for testing these ideas. And this is exactly what we're doing. I have to ask you a difficult question here, Doctor, because uh, this is something that I've brought up with other people who've come on the show, and it's gotten me in trouble. But I'm going to ask you this question because uh, a lot of what you're saying really resonates with me personally. If indeed you have had experiences where you've been able with other people to, in essence, communicate and summon the appearance of a craft, I would ask you, have you taken that opportunity to create credible visual evidence that could be used to convince other people of the veracity of what you're talking about? Because I think that if you can do this in a controllable way, that's a tremendous advantage to being able to generate something that would really go a long way towards letting people know that this is not some fringy claim, that this is not some area of interest that is uh, that is to be marginalized. H have you attempted to do that? Yeah, we have a number of videotapes and photographs of these sort of encounters, but again, remember, while some of them have been objects that are fully materialized, others of them have been things that have been not quite there. Now, what I mean by that, they're visually, they're, you can see them, but they're not solid. And it, it reminds me of this uh, Air Force officer who was out at a nuclear, a hot area of a, of a nuclear weapon storage area when one of these things flew over. And everyone thought that they were seeing things. There were all these guards there, and it was a cobalt blue craft that was completely translucent and moving through the buildings and through the bomber squad. Now, set off all the hmm. alarms, and it looked just like a, quote, UFO or an ET craft, but it wasn't solid. Now, one of the problems with all of this is that everyone thinks of Close Encounters of the Third Kind or some science fiction movie. You know, you just, you know, move beyond that. If something looks like that, it may be ET, but more likely it's an alien reproduction vehicle manufactured by Northrop and Lockheed. But... I think that we do have some very interesting photographs and videotape of these events, and we have mass witness events. And this is actually recounted in this new book. I don't operate a camera. The people who have come have been volunteers, and they're not professional. One of these days, what I would really like to do is do an experiment like this, where on site we have state-of-the-art sensing equipment, not just photographic, but all kinds of electronic sensing equipment, uh, so that when things begin to happen, it can be recorded on many electromagnetic levels so with a, a very, very full spectrum of data, as well as audio and video. Uh, but we do have some of that. And, and, and what we're saying is that this is a very important uh, experimental protocol to use. And it's not as if one summons them up and, you know, it's like dolphins at SeaWorld that jump through a hoop for you. I mean, this is a very, you know, incorrect and I think uh, a wrong idea, but I think that the the idea that you can actually try to initiate contact, which I call a close encounter of the fifth kind, by using a broad spectrum of, of approaches, not just uh, lasers and, and, and electronic tones and radio signals, but also consciousness and thought and remote sensing, that uh, what we have found is that there's a great deal that does happen and can happen 
and that this is something which has to be incorporated eventually into some kind of a formal research effort, which, of course, uh, has not happened yet, and maybe someday it will. Uh, I well, encourage one who's interested in that to uh, try to experiment with it themselves. It isn't that difficult to do. I would say that if you ever attempt to put together a, a situation like you've described on the East Coast, I'd be very happy to attend and bring some real video gear because, uh, uh, to my way of thinking, some sort of evidence, even if it's a semi... Actually, I have to tell you, if you've got an occurrence where there's a semi-translucent craft moving through solid matter, in many ways, that is much more compelling video evidence than a shiny metallic disc in the air. That's something that would be much more difficult to reproduce um, uh, with any kind of visual effects technology. Of course, we know that anything can be created or fabricated with current visual technology, but I think that when you, if you took something like that where you had a situation that... I'm not trying to say that, you should, you know, that these beings would be... These things are on. If you go to cseti.org, the um, organization, that's the parent organization of disclosureproject.org, um, at cseti.org, um, there is a section that has some of these uh, images up there and the accounts of the teams that have been out that have had... Okay. And so, you know, I would encourage people interested in that to look into it. I know that I will. I think that, you know, part of the problem right now is that people are very visually sophisticated. They're used to going to movies and seeing all sorts of fabrications and recreations of things that never actually existed. I think if you were to combine the validity of a large amount of witness testimony that was, you know, really solid, combine that with all of the background information you're giving us and some very credible video and audio evidence, uh, I think you'd, you'd be a, a, a very far part of the way to making an incredibly compelling and uh, a very convincing argument that this is indeed a reality that you've uncovered and that people should be paying attention to it. So I think it, it's something that you should definitely strive for. And I have to say, any of the, I'm going to reemphasize this, any video materials that you have, um, and I'm happy to speak to your webmaster, all of that stuff should go up on YouTube and Google Video immediately just because people need to see it. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. The Paracast. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer. We have time just a few more minutes with him. Dr. Greer heads the Disclosure Project, and he's also author of a new book called Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge. And we have a link to both over at the Paracast.com website. Dr. Greer, and as we kind of wind down here, I have a couple of questions, one or two, and maybe David has a final question or so. One is from here with the Disclosure Project, where do you go? Because obviously you've seen the governmental brick wall that occurs when you try to get some traction on this. So where do you go next? Well, I, what we're working on right now, and I think this is really key, 
is building uh, liaisons to other governments around the world to support disclosure, such as what's happening in Canada and which is also happening in other governments in Europe that we have some very good contacts with. And I think the, the other is that people have to uh, take responsibility for this. I think that it, we never view this, not at the beginning of the project and not today, that this is something that is uh, going to be uh, thrown into the hands of the government and they're going to deal with it. It's going to happen because enough people take an interest, there's enough solid evidence that happens, there's enough networking through the Internet and other uh, media shows that the word gets out. And I have to point out that you know millions and millions of people have seen this these sort of testimonies and evidence and people who are very skeptical said boy you know I mean you know either I've hypnotized all these guys to pick up the story or, there, or there's something really going on out there uh, and, and we're talking aerospace engineers at Purdue and people like that so my view of it is that uh, this is something that the people have to take responsibility for, and that's what I'm encouraging them to do. The second is that the big thrust that we're working on, in addition to that, are these energy and propulsion uh, systems that will uh, prove this, uh, that this kind of technology is possible. And uh, we've had some fairly significant breakthroughs in the last six months with people who are quite sophisticated in that area and who have worked General Motors and in other places with these sort of technologies and who are willing now to come together as a, as a civilian group outside of, of the government corporate complex and put them out there because if you can build something that proves anti-gravity or electrogravitic uh, technologies or so-called zero-point uh, quantum vacuum energy, so-called free energy, uh, or other advanced types of energy systems aside from the enormous benefits to society and to the environment, uh, it would also bring with it an opening to this whole new area of resonance field sciences where, where you're dealing with a whole new physics that, that while maybe discussed in string theory or spin theory or what have you, uh, doesn't have a whole lot of information out there in terms of an applied science. And I think that's what needs to happen. And it only has to happen to benefit the world and, and, and humanity and, and the Earth's burden with uh, the current environmental situation. But I think it needs to happen in terms of even proving the science behind the potential for these sort of uh, UFO-related objects. Let me ask you, with all the stuff that's going on in the Middle East kind of sidetracking the governments, do you think this might be a time to kind of get a breakthrough here? Because we've been talking about this for so many years. Now, the modern UFO era beginning in 1947, we're in 2006 when this program is being recorded. Right. Do you think that there is a way now to make it happen as opposed to what's happened before where every time you think you're getting close, the door shuts? Well, we're certainly working on it, and I, and I think that the trend line is in the favor of disclosure. It is a huge, huge uh, undertaking because of the vested interest we talked about earlier in the show, wanting to keep the secret. If it was just about disclosing the fact that there's life in outer space and we've been visited, I think that would have been done by now. I think even though there would be certain reactionary religious a small percentage of the population that would have a fit. You know, I'm referring now to the lunatic fringe uh, sort of crowd. But in reality, most people already accept the fact, if you look at the studies, that, uh, that there is likely intelligent life out there. And, and depending on the poll, upwards of half the population thinks that there's something to the UFOs and that something's being hidden from us. But I think that the, the real issue has to do with the power dynamics in the world. And I think that what's happening in the Middle East 
the overplaying of our hand in, in this certain mess that we call the Iraq War, um, the dependence that we have on fossil fuels as, as oil prices uh, climbed to $75 a barrel and that probably hit it towards 100 um, I think that all this is favorable to more and more of the people involved in this issue uh, allowing disclosure to happen and facilitating it with us. And uh, I'm, I can't say more than that. <laughs> there is very strong outreach happening right now from certain quarters, uh, not in the United States, but in other countries mm-hmm. along the lines. So I'm cautiously optimistic. I think ultimately, though, we need to take uh, this matter up into our own hands as a people and uh, do the disclosure and bring out the technologies ourselves. I would not want to sit back passively and just... Uh, expected for this to happen uh, by itself. Well, I would submit to you, Dr. Greer, that the money powers that really are interested in one thing, maintaining money and power, at some point, uh, ultimately, they are business people. And if they see that there is a positive cost analysis in sort of letting go of the old uh, methodologies and the, and the old architectures of, of, of the way that they've structured their power and they look at this limitless, potential limitless power as a way to create new products, as a way to create new opportunities for economic growth, I think that they'll break out of the old pattern and they'll leave the oil in the ground so we don't continue to pull out of the earth what appears to be its lubrication system, which at some point that's got to cave in on us figuratively and literally. Maybe they'll see the viability of moving to these new power systems and at that point, they will let this, what would hopefully be a natural progression into a more evolved state, maybe they will let it happen. We can hope, we can only be hopeful, because otherwise, uh, you know, uh, it's it's too hard to get frustrated and, and depressed over this. Right, exactly. And this is why I think you just have to keep working to get this done and moving. I, I've said for years that while a lot of our work is, is directed towards informing the general public, a, a great deal of it has been in working with these power elites. And a lot of people criticize mm-hmm. me for that. But I said, look, these are men and, and a few women who put their pants on one leg at a time. Not all of them are eschatological religious kooks who want to see the end of the world happen. <laughs> and, and they can be uh, educated on this. They can be persuaded. And as the obvious problems with global warming and, and Mideastern turmoil right. and dependency and economic instability mm-hmm. become more and more acute. There are more and more of those people coming over to our side of this issue. So I think that uh, you know one has to remain uh, cautiously optimistic and keep moving that forward. And this is why we continue to do not only the public uh, advocacy, but also uh, the meetings that we continue to have with folks inside these circles to, to educate them on another way of resolving this problem rather than just letting the whole ship of state crash, which I think, unfortunately, there's a certain amount of uh, hopelessness, even within this group, about how to resolve these complex problems. It's a rather overwhelming thing to think about. If you think too much, you end up straining every uh, uh, you know, uh, neuron going through this stuff. Um, and, and I think it is a, a big issue. But uh, I think we will make progress, and it's, it, we have made an enormous progress in, in the past uh, few years, and I think we're going to continue to see that. It's inevitable that disclosure on this matter will happen. I think it's inevitable that these new technologies will be applied. The only question is how much damage to uh, humanity has to happen, how much damage to the biosphere and Earth has to happen before 
we get it. And, and it's not a matter of if, it's, it's when. For those who are wondering more about the things that you do at the Disclosure Project, maybe we could spend this final moment or two telling our listeners where to get in touch with the Disclosure Project to you if they have more information and maybe to acquire some of your books. Sure. The, uh, the best way is DisclosureProject.org. It's all one word, DisclosureProject.org. And uh, for the training programs we have for the ET contact programs, it's uh, CSETI.org. And the other thing that uh, people can do is help us network this matter to their friends and families and tell people about the website and tell people to get educated. We have found that once people actually look at the data that's out there and the evidence that's been assembled, that it becomes rather difficult for people to deny that there's something very important going on. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really about networking and educating each other. Well, I appreciate this experience of networking with you, Dr. Greer, Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. Thank you so much for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you. Glad to be here. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. So, my friend, what do you think? Actually, I have a lot of question marks. I was very taken by what Dr. Greer had to tell us. I mean, uh, there are many specific issues he brought up that heavily intersect my own thinking on this matter and some of the possible, some of the possible realities that surround this phenomenon. There were some things, though, I have to say were a little on the edge of believability. Uh, I have a little bit of a hard time thinking that people can, in a reproducible fashion, summon UFOs psychically. I don't know that I necessarily believe that, Gene. I've heard that before, but again, it's something that yeah. I'm skeptical about, too. It's, it's a little edgy because, it, it, to me, it calls into question the core issue of motivation. We started to talk about that with Dr. Greer, but that's one topic I'd like to talk about with him a lot more, which is with these beings, wherever they are from, what is their motivation for being here? This is, I think, perhaps the most perplexing and problematic aspect of discussing this topic, because as human beings, we really only understand what motivates us as people. We don't understand what motivates, in many cases, other forms of life on this planet. I think it's something that we feel really sets us apart from the rest of the life on the planet, that our motivations are somehow better, more noble, or certainly more complex than other creatures. I would suggest that we don't fully understand our own motivations because we wouldn't really want to deal with the reality of that. It would not be the prettiest picture in the world. 
But my point is that I still have an issue understanding really what drives these creatures, wherever they're from, to come here and interact with us. And when Dr. Greer was discussing this idea that he could make these things come, I thought to myself, if I were them, why would I respond to a request like that? Why? I mean, this is where a, a lot of this, again, it just gets very complex here, and I don't know that we got those answers. I have to tell you something else. In doing some research on Dr. Greer, uh, there are people out there who feel very strongly about him in a negative way. Now, I have to tell you, based on our conversation, I don't come away with that thought or feeling. I don't think that Dr. Greer, well, again, it's my opinion, and it's uh, completely subject to being 100% wrong. I don't get the sense that this gentleman is doing this for reasons that are motivated by profit or money, okay? Let, let's just come right out with that. We've had other guests on that clearly uh, have that as their primary motivation. I don't personally get the sense from Dr. Greer that's what's motivating him in this quest and in, in this project he's undertaken, which it sounds like a really daunting task. And uh, it's amazing that here is his doctor with a family who has subjected himself to this stuff. Uh, it makes me wonder about why he's doing this. And again, I don't think it's for profit. Uh, is it for ego gratification? Well, you know, if a doctor is the kind of person who can make people feel better by use of their intelligence, their skills, I would have to believe that for someone being a doctor who is respected, by all counts, Dr. Greer is, wouldn't that provide them with the kind of ego gratification that people might think someone would be motivated for in getting involved with the UFO field? I have to tell you, I'll speak for myself here, I'm not involved in doing the show with you because I'm trying to satisfy some ego issue I have in terms of wanting people to listen to me. Uh, Gene, you know, all Photoshop profit stuff aside, as you well know, in the Photoshop world, I, I am very respected. In fact, some people really fear me, which I find kind of interesting, and, and have worked hard to sort of push me down or marginalize me. I've had some very unpopular thoughts about certain directions that Photoshop has taken in the past, which have not endeared me, in many cases, to the folks in Adobe, whose work I really respect. So the thing about you know getting attention, as my role in the Photoshop world of being the person who created the first book for it, you know, the person behind the most collectible book about it, I get that ego gratification from, you know, just even my playing around the Photoshop world. You know, we're not doing this show because we're driven by some sense of ego. I think we're doing it because we're genuinely interested in the topic. You and I genuinely want to find some answers to this stuff. Indeed. This is not something here where we're doing it for the fame, for the glory, for the $12 million we hope we get after the first year. This is not the reason we did this show. We came together because we've been interested in this subject for a long time. David has been interested since he was very young. I was also. Mm -hmm. And I followed this through a lot of years where I could have done some very productive things. Instead, I opted to do this instead. Right. I think we're doing it for, for the most part for the, for, the, for the same reason, clearly. In my discussions with Jeff Ritzman, his interest in this topic is motivated from a similar place. Like myself, he's had experiences that he desperately needs to understand. It's, it's hard for those of us who have had paranormal experiences that we feel are, are real. Of course, it's all subject to uh, you know the psychological evaluation. When you have witnesses, of course, this all changes. When two or three or a hundred or a thousand people see something, then you can no longer sort of attach that to some notion of, oh, there was a psychological breakdown or, oh, this person is looking for attention, like I was accused of doing by that authorized U.S. media jerk. You know, the way that he attacked me, trying to claim that 
the fact that I expressed on our forums to another one of our listeners that that experience for me was very fearful, that I was, you know, I was not thinking, oh, I hope they beam me up. I was thinking, oh, my God, what in the hell is that? And what is it doing here? You know, that I thought was a healthy response to that situation, being questioned about that being accused of even talking about it now for ego reasons is really, it's heinous to me. It's just absolutely unbelievable. And getting back to Dr. Greer, you know, I get the feeling that he's involved in this because of something he has seen or something he's lived through. I would be really curious to speak to his co-witnesses. He says other people saw ships with him. I'd like to talk with them. You know, we didn't get into the issue of photographic evidence. You know, where is his evidence? Though, as I said to him, you know, I'd be very happy to bring some real video gear to a place where he can summon ships. I'd be very happy to videotape that, Gene, in a, in a heartbeat. You know, this is the kind of stuff we need and we want in order to make this discussion more serious and more sober. But what I said to Dr. Greer, and I'll say it to you again here, I think these guys need to get their content onto Google Video and YouTube. They need to get these hundreds of witness testimonies all of this massive amount of video stuff they've got, they need to get this online. People need to have access to this. People shouldn't have to pay money for this. I know that it takes a lot of work to get all this stuff online, even just to prepare it and compress it. But if, if what we're talking about here is perhaps the most important story in human history, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that if there is indeed something going on here, it dwarfs anything that's ever happened to us in our known history. I think that's a very fair statement. If someone has a genuinely large, convincing body of evidence, they should say to hell with any kind of profit or monetary motive, let's get this stuff out there. And that's, maybe we can help Dr. Greer and his crew get some of this testimony, get a massive amount of it, maybe all of it, onto the web so people can listen to it and come to their own conclusions with Gene. That's what this is about, not having someone else digest opinions and come up with some answer for you. This is what I feel the Meyer people are doing with Billy Meyer, okay? They're turning to this guy saying, Billy, we believe anything you tell us. They're looking for willing. answers and they're looking for their own profit. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me remind yeah. our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Earlier today, we heard from Dr. Stephen Greer, the head of the Disclosure Project. And we're talking about that and talking about UFO belief systems in general. Just what kind of evidence do we need to prove something is going on? Now, the goal of the Disclosure Project is worthy, which is to get government people to admit what's going on. Mm -hmm. But the problem I have with that is the same problem that's happened for a long, long time. Back in the 1950s. We had Major Donald Kehoe writing some very popular books where he said, let's just have a congressional hearing. And he seemed to have a very naive outlook about the way the government works, thinking that if you just have hearings in Congress, yeah. everything will come out. We'll know what really is going on. And if we follow what has been said by people like Colonel Philip Corso, for example, where all this information is kept secret in many different ways, on many different levels. People know only a certain amount of information, or there is, as some suggest, so much disinformation around that it's hard to separate the real stuff from the fake stuff. Absolutely. And especially if we are now trying to perfect alien-based technology to build aircraft. Okay, so we're testing those craft, maybe. 
or just testing anything new. Now, I'll go back to that person I've mentioned a number of times on our show. He was on our first episode, Jim Mosley, the editor of Saucer Smear. Now, people think, well, he's just in it for fun and games, and you'd be right. But he had a serious interest in the subject. He started out in his early 20s being very serious about it. Then he came up with something called the Earth Theory, which was that UFOs were largely secret weapons. In other words, things that our governments have developed that they were testing. And because they tested them in out-of-the-way places mostly and because they used technologies that people weren't aware of and they wouldn't accept or admit or give advance warning of those tests, of course, these things were interpreted as something else. It's also possible that the abductions are other efforts at disinformation where, number one, either the hypnotist mistakenly manipulates somebody or the government manipulates people into believing they have been abducted, they have met Venusians and Martians. How do you separate all that? So it kind of makes things kind of messy. And this is why, going back to NICAP, with their goals, their lofty goals in the 50s, I didn't think it was going to happen. During the 60s, they actually did discuss in Congress UFOs. And we see what happened, okay? And now we see Dr. Greer. He's talking with these government officials. And yes, we're going to have these press conferences. And they had something at the National Press Club a few years ago. What happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. It's not going to come out that way. No. No, there were bigger topics of the day, Gene. Um, what happened was that we've got a sort of a global meltdown going on on a number of levels, and this stuff is just too fringy for most people who are concerned about their jobs, their mortgages, staying healthy, staying alive, keeping their kids alive, you know, trying to keep us from seeing more of the horrors that we've seen in recent years. There's just too much other stuff going on for people, I think, in general, to pay any attention to a field of study. And I think there is a good amount of study going on here. There's a lot of junk going on as well. There are a bunch of charlatans at play, Gene. You know, let's make no mistake. But at the same time, the legitimate work that's going on, it's simply not a priority in people's minds. It gets lost on the, you know, on the 11th page. It's not, first, it's not the front page stuff. I think that there has been a very concerted effort over the years to keep it that way. I'll sum up my, my, my feelings about this for our listeners, because this is important. I want people to understand where I'm coming from in discussing any of this stuff. Just in terms of simple statistics, let's just talk about basic numbers. There are some number of people's reported experiences, whether it's individuals or collectives or groups. We take that number of, of sightings, of claimed abductions, we have, you know, this number in front of us. Some large double-digit percentage of that number are going to be things that are either people's false memories, people's desires and fears projected into what is what has become a memory, their dreams. Let's throw into this people seeking attention, people wanting to feel important. Let's throw into this people who might have been subject to some weird covert government operation where they thought they were being abducted, but indeed they weren't. Let's take that whole group of everything that is not legitimately, truly unknown, and let's put that in this double-digit number. Let's say it's 98% of all reported cases, Gene. 98% of them are complete crap. That leaves us with 2%. 2% that we don't understand. 2% that we don't know. Let's take half of that away. Let's say half of that is somehow explainable. 1% of something this big, quite frankly, is enough to keep me interested because of what it is we're talking about. 
the, one of the most basic questions that concerns us, are we alone in this universe? If not, who or what else is out there? It's clear to me, Gene, and I think any reasonably intelligent person would look into the sky and understand that the diversity of life on this planet is reflective of the diversity of life in this universe, life that we cannot imagine. The building blocks for it are all over the place, Gene. Oxygen, hydrogen, that's pretty much what you need. Carbon, throw in all... <laughs> All the basic ingredients to this thing we called life. If this is indeed true, if we know that there is life out in the rest of the universe, and it appears that some small amount of that life is visiting us, however they're doing it, for whatever reason, we have to be curious about this, Gene. If we're not curious about this, then I think that something is deeply wrong with us. And I think that for people who would look at this entire field and marginalize it, and say, well, this is just a bunch of junk. Part of me understands what they're saying. At the same time, part of me says to them, do you for a moment think that humans in their current state are the ultimate expression of nobility in the universe? Do you think we're the ultimate expression of intelligence? It's nice to believe that, but I'd like to believe that maybe, just maybe, there's someone out there that we can learn something from. And if that's the case, I'd like to meet them, and I'd like to learn from them. I don't want to be prodded or poked I don't, I don't want to be examined by some strange creature in some weird luminous craft in the middle of a field looking at a cow carcass next to me thinking, oh, I'm next. What about I, the female UFO pilot? Well, you know... Um, Maybe there's an exception. Oh, I... I let me tell you something, <laughs> my friend. I, I, not, this is not the topic of this show, but I say keep it in the species, and that goes for aliens as well. Okay. <laughs> so, so, no, so no Earthlings and Vulcans getting together. We don't think well, that. I think that consenting adults should do whatever they want, as long as no one gets hurt or no one gets hurt accidentally. That's what they're planning to do, you know, but then power. Can we say them, consenting humanoids? Humanoids? Yes. I, well, you know, if the parts fit, then go for it, man. I mean, sure, uh, I, I, I haven't met the alien that's uh, done it for me yet, Gene, but, I, you know, I... She, you're she young, my there. friend. You're young. She oh, may yeah, land yeah. tomorrow and say, David, oh, no, you have a great lady now. You don't need an alien you know, lady. I have a, a wonderful woman in my life, and I don't, I, don't, I don't think she's an alien, but, you know, she's full of surprises, so you never know. She can I, say, I, David, I, I come from Tau City or something like that, and I'm here to help you rather than harm you. I'd say, when are we leaving? Where are we going? And what do I need to take? Okay. It almost reminds me of another subject I want to discuss, and we're running out of time here. And that's Project Serpo, which, oh boy. yeah, there's a, it's another can of worms, but it's allegedly a project that brings to life the scenario in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where the aliens take a few of our people to experience life on the other side of the tracks, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Have you read any of this material, Gene? I've read some of it. I'm very skeptical, but I would like to explore it in a fair and objective fashion because I think not just focus on sightings, but focus on experiences which may extend beyond routine sightings about belief systems, about opinions. Try to also look at things that might be a hoax and expose them so we can get on with our business. I yeah. think we did that with the Meyer case. We made very clear this is a hoax, it's a fabrication, it's a fake. We've got to do that with other stuff. Well, and well, hold on unlike a, a lot of other shows out there, I think well, the thing on. that we can offer is the ability to separate wheat from the chaff, my friend. 
I think you're right, but you know, I, I just and, and you're gonna, you, you might think I'm insane for saying this, but the portion of the Meyer case that is not true is the UFO and paranormal related stuff. If these guys want to have a religion based around this guy's writings, Gene, I say let them have it. I don't care. All right, in that sense, in that sense, I have no problem either. Sure. Right, but 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 I think it's important because, of course, they're going to scream that we're just like trashing them and and marginalizing them. Here's the deal: they get to believe whatever they want, but they don't get to present their quote-unquote evidence and say we are based on a series of legitimate, real UFO sightings and and encounters and and you know contact. We don't buy that. We want to basically get to the truth of what is at the core of each matter. I mean, and this is a lofty goal. I don't know if we can accomplish it or not, Gene, but ultimately, we are about paranormal realities. What in our universe of experience that we go through, that we can't explain, can we really understand, ultimately? That's what this show should be about. That's what it needs to be about. Not what so many of our quote-unquote competitors, I don't think we have a competitor, Gene. I think there are other shows out there that are playing into the show business side of the stuff, in a goofy, silly way, and also mixing in all sorts of apocalyptic doom junk to you know get people stirred up and afraid. So they're doing that game. I'm much more interested in dis- in discussing and trying to come to some to some core truths of some of these situations. We've came to I, what I believe is the truth about the Meyer stuff, and they are what they are. And you know what? We shouldn't even discuss them anymore. We shouldn't even bring them up anymore. They they have nothing to do with the paranormal world. Okay, so, that you know, their history. Moratorium on that. All right, oh, no okay. more them. Okay, so the M word will no longer be mentioned on the paragraphs. No Ladies more. and gentlemen, no. the other thing we're not going to do is we're not going to ask <laughs> softball questions. We're not going to be like Larry King. You know, when a politician wants to express a point of view and not be challenged, he goes on Larry King. And we don't want to be Bill O'Reilly of the paranormal set, but we're going to not be afraid to ask the tough questions that we think you want to know about and we're going to try to provide as much valid information as we can we're not just going to give people a forum to express silly stuff if we think it's too silly we're going to talk about it we may not necessarily argue with them on the show but we'll certainly do our monday morning or tuesday morning quarterback and we're going to tell you what we think we've got more great things coming up on the paracast The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.